Thank you, Courtney. Good morning, everyone. This is your first time here. Welcome to the Collective Prom. Um, sorry about the weirdness of the room, but my name is Casey. Uh, I'm a pastor here, and I have the privilege of teaching the Bible to you. So what we're going to do right now is we're just going to pray. We absolutely need prayer. I need prayer. So we're going to pray one more time. This is not routine. This is not just something that we do just to transition. This is because we believe in the power of prayer because we believe in the power of God. So if you will pray with me that we're going to get crack a lacking. Sound good? Woo! Heavenly Father, you are good. You are good. Despite whether we at times feel it, despite whether we intellectually can justify it in some sense of, of, of our circumstances, you are good. And so what we need right now is a deeper, deeper, more living, actualized faith of that incredible truth. So whatever you have to say to us is because you are good, you are for our good. So whatever you have to say to us, may we accept it. And may we allow it to alter and reorient the focus and gaze of our life. Lord, I desperately need help. I am an imperfect Bible teacher. I am an imperfect man who, Lord, the most I could contribute to the sermon is really just messing it up. So allow me in my weakness and imperfections to rely on you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to kind of like gear your guys' way a little bit. But this morning, right now, what expectations, what expectations are you carrying of God, of Jesus, of Christianity? Are the expectations of that God That God is a solution. God is the solution to all of my problems. Visitor, if this is your first time here, if you're just checking this out, is this why you have come this morning? That maybe this Jesus is the solution to my financial woes. Maybe this Jesus is the solution to Maroon's five lack of talent. Huh? There's one. There's one. I promise five horrific illustrations, Maroon 5, okay? But let's be honest, even Jesus couldn't fix that trash fire, okay? Or could Jesus be the solution to our unmet dreams? Could this God or Jesus be the solution to my lacking friendships? I don't know if you remember, but years ago, there was the cheesiest song Oh gosh, and I mean no offense if the band members happen to go to this church and I don't know it, or if you like this song, I seriously mean no offense. But the chorus went like this. Oh God, I'm gonna try to do it without singing it, but it's hard. But it goes, there is a God-shaped hole in all of us. Remember that movie? Sam, you remember it. Who remembers that song? Okay, only a couple of you. I'm really embarrassed that I just sang it then. My wife remembers it. You better raise your hand. You remember it. There's a God-shaped hole in all of us. Mm, this idea that God will just fix everything, that he will eradicate suffering or he will overload us with miracles or he will fix the poverty line. Now, I better be careful. This isn't, isn't an issue of longing for God. The issue is often the God we're longing for. We must see that religion and church history has done us a great disservice for our faith. That being projecting a God of the Bible like an oxy-clean commercial, right? The stain removal power of a product, the stain removal power of a Jesus. But the alarming side of those conclusions is what? What do we do with something or a product that doesn't work? We discard it. We trash it. The broken vacuum gets returned. 
The crappy restaurant gets yelped and never returned or whatever. The deodorant gets thrown away. Then what happens to the Savior and Lord if he doesn't do what we want? He gets So if someone decides to give this, or if you're here trying to give this Jesus solution a try, and then all of a sudden you don't get, or we don't get, or I don't get the position, the promotion, the person, then what? So today, Collective Church, today is about loss. The urging to lose any and all wrong, wrong, wrong expectations of God, of Christ, of his will, and of the church. It's helpful to be reminded that the book of Hebrews, which we're so close to finishing, we're so close to finishing, is about a Jewish community church who at one point joyfully gave their life to Jesus. Absolutely, I love you, Jesus. But because of persecution and rejection and pain, they are now in mid-turn back to their old ways of Judaism and religiosity. They are mid-turn heading that way. Essentially, you could say they're returning the product. They're returning the product. They are discarding, or excuse me, discarding that this Jesus Windex bottle, which didn't clean up their lives and offer temporal happiness, desired comfort, ease, praise, acclaim, and accolades, it's not enough. Simply, they're, they're close to giving up on Jesus. They're close to giving up on Jesus. Who here today is in that same position? Who here is right now last-ditch effort and they're very close to giving up on Jesus? Their pastor, an unknown yet brilliant and eccentric preacher who we call the stranger because he's mysterious, he preaches ever so passionately to them to not give up on Jesus. No, no, no. He says, rather give up on your idea of Jesus. Give up on your wrong idea of Jesus. Because expectations like fine pottery, the tighter we grip to them, the more likely they are to crack. Again, I invite you today, Collective Church, to to lose. To lose them, to be losers, to join the losers club. And how? By inviting you to some very distinct reorientations, all which pour from the rich black ink of Hebrews 13. From this, Christians and those here who aren't will gain the right expectations of who Savior Jesus is. Because for those here who don't trust or follow Jesus, we want to make sure that the Jesus you are possibly rejecting today or here on out is the Jesus, is the right Jesus you're rejecting. You have to at least know what you're rejecting. So if you haven't turned there yet, please do so. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 makes a singular point. A singular point through much differing dialogue, and it's this. If you want to jot this down in your journals. If Christ is actually superior in us, It'll be, lived, excuse me, it'll be lived out through us. If Christ is actually superior, as he says, it'll be lived out through us. That's it. That's the point of Hebrews 13. So today can't be obviously removed from last week if you were here where we discussed the standards for life. And from there, it tells this very frail community, verse nine of chapter 13. Do not be led away by diverse and strange Another word for that would be alien. Alien teachings. For it is good for their heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So because, get this, because of the felt distance between them and Jesus, an extension from Judaism slithered in, that being an adherence to external, external, external religious 
practices. Also take note, just a side note, an experience of discomfort from this church opened all of this up. They felt uncomfortable and it's like opening a window in a snowstorm. And for this community, these practices became obsessive. These food rituals became obsessive because who cares about food, right? Who actually cares about food? Unless it mutates into what it never should have been, which is an all of life consuming importance. Now, believe it or not, when certain people, and I don't know if everybody here is gonna actually agree with this, but when certain people are trying to discover solutions, God's solutions, will Jesus fix this? We always, always, always prefer playbooks, religious playbooks. Mankind prefers, just tell me, Pastor Fat Casey, whatever, just tell me when to sit. Just tell me, Casey, when to stand. Just tell me, Casey, when to bow. Casey, just tell us how much time to read. Just tell us how much of the penny amount we should give to the church. Just tell us the prescribed rituals and the detailed ceremonies. Just give us the exactness. Why? Because we don't want to screw it up. Why? Because we're afraid of doing it wrong and missing out. And also because it is far more comforting to do those things than to be challenged to walk through mystery. We don't like mystery. Everything is black and white in our culture. You are a Republican or you are a Democrat. You are a Maroon 5 fan or you are not a Maroon 5 fan. It is one or the other. And if you're a Maroon 5 fan, right now, it keeps us in control. It keeps us in control. That was two. Keeps us in control. How this could play out now though, for them it's food ceremonies. How this could play out now though is, I'm not reading the Bible enough. How this could play out now though is I'm not doing enough. I don't pray enough. I don't give enough. I don't study enough. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. If only I was doing and developing these spiritual strategies, then, aha, I would be really good. God would be amped on me, right? I would be a better person. Christianity for me would then be whatever. Collective church, please listen. These and those and any shadow forms of those are false teachings. False teachings. It is our innate nature to stick, like stickiness, to things which comfort us or itch our ears. The reason the stranger has to tell his church, look at verse nine again, do not be led away. Guess why? Because they have a tendency to be led away. And so do we. So this isn't a question of whether or not we'll encounter strange teachings. In this city, in this day of media, we encounter it daily. Daily, daily, daily. In this, oh, excuse me. So actually, let me just say this. I'm gonna say this a little firmly, but I, I would also say some of us have gone so far as believing them right now. There are people right now in our community who I want to call away from today who are believing aspects of false teachings. So the question is, how do we discern or guard ourselves from those mirages? The greatest offense, and here it is, I'm gonna go over them very quickly if you wanna write them down, but the greatest offense against believing strange and diverse teachings, it's a few things. One of them is a fervent, fervent, fervent commitment to a local Bible teaching, Jesus proclaiming, gospel identifying church community. Whoever you are, do that more. That sound, that was great. 
The Sunday gatherings in the book of Hebrews is stressed. This is stressed to vital levels in the book of Hebrews because they were haphazardly attending to break bread and pray together and sit under God's teaching together. So the stranger was like, do not neglect Sunday gatherings because this is what helps dilute and push out false teachings. And when we avoid those certain foods, breaking bread, coming together, so on and so forth, our soul then feeds on anything else it possibly can get its mouth on. We also need a fervent uh, commitment to being responsible, to being responsible for our own discipleship. We say this all the time, but I cannot care more for your discipleship than you do. It will not survive. I cannot care for more for your, your spirituality or your faith than you do. We must have a fervent commitment to our own discipleship. And lastly, accountable leadership. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. We're going to skip down. Super practical. Verse 17 says, obey your leaders. <laughs> Could you imagine if I just ended it right there? <laughs> Do what I say. No, that word obey means being persuaded by. And then it says submit to them. And then submit means to yield to them or comply. For they, and look at this, nobody wants to be a pastor elder after you read these words. For they are keeping watch over, watching over, watching over what? Your car keys, your bank account? No, our freaking souls. Holy crap, that's intense. So let me just say this since we're on this little chunk, because this is a little bit awkward for me to talk about being a church leader. For some of you, I am your church leader. But simply, the call to submit or adhere to our authority, hear this, is not universal. Meaning, if we, Isaac, who did announcements, Pastor Lorenzo, are not submitted to the authoritative word of God, or any of your future pastors aren't, run for the hills. I would encourage you, if you leave this church, or you haven't yet done this at this church, and you're going to go find a new church in Connecticut or wherever else, I don't know. If you're going to do that, Sit down with your pastor. Sit down with them. I don't care if the church is a mega church or whatever. Schedule a meeting with a pastor and ask them what they believe, their values, their, their philosophy. Understand who they are. Ask their story. This is important. Part of being a part of a church is yielding to church leadership. This is a biblical thing. I didn't write this and put this on the screen and say, I hope they don't notice. I didn't do that. This is biblical. We're committed, your pastors, are to truth-telling and helping you all with biblical guidance for your lives because look at verse 17, as those who will have to give an account. Your elders or any church elder has to give an account to God. So then let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Again, I didn't write this. <laughs> Just to make that clear. So how do I say this? If Lorenzo, if Isaac or myself despise our calling because of the groaning that may happen within a church, how the church should be more this way. The church is not doing what's right here. The church hasn't joined my organization here. The community isn't what I expected. Casey isn't a good Bible teacher. Yes, we've heard all of them. then what suffers is you. 
When groaning happens, what suffering, what suffers is you. It is no advantage to you for pastors at any church to be miserable. It is of no advantage. So because of all of that, verse 18, look at this humble declaration of this mysterious preacher known as the stranger. He says, pray for us. He doesn't say give us money. He doesn't say feel bad for us. He says intercede for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. If you don't pray for your church leaders or you haven't prayed for me, Lorenzo Isaac, I humbly, humbly ask right now, would you please? Would you please? We, we, we know that the prayers of the people and the intercession of our people is what, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can sustain us with a joy so that we can fervently be committed to doctrine and defining it and directing it and defending it as to abolish any and all strange and diverse teachings in this community. We cannot stress enough that the absolute, the absolute danger of strange teachings washing ashore in anybody's community, it is dangerous. I don't know if you remember, but the story in Greek mythology where the mother of Achilles dipped her son in the river Styx to give him invulnerability. I think we have a picture. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I censored a baby butt. We have many sensitive people here with baby butts. So I censored it for anybody who would be weird. But this is the mother dipping Achilles into the river Styx, like I said, to give him invulnerability. The problem was for Achilles is where her grip was. It was around his heel. That heel left him vulnerable. Christians, when we submerge ourselves in doctrine and biblical truth, but a small part of us, a heel, you could say, is left untouched or undipped, then often that turns out to be our greatest space of vulnerability. I think we all know what happened to Achilles in war on a small arrow to his heel. And so for many, our Achilles heel, collective church, is this. In the book of uh, Galatians, the Apostle Paul tells us, this is for many Achilles heel of ours. Apostle Paul says, are you so foolish? Have you begun, excuse me, having begun by the spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? Church, church, church. It's very important that we understand this because it's deadly to think that the cause of internal or inward growth or forcing God to have a manifest presence or emotionalism can come from the enslavement of external strategies. We must lose this idea. So I'm gonna ask a question to our community. Are there any strange or alien truths that you might believe in, false truths? You might be holding on to something where you've dipped your life into it, but there's still something, a little shred of left over of an old way or an old thought or a wrong thought. Spiritual maturity, soul keeping can come from one way only by receiving, appreciating, enjoying, basking in, recognizing what? Hebrews 13, nine tells us. For it is good for the heart, the heart being the inner you, the, the command center, the capital of ourselves, to be strengthened by grace. Be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. See, not by cheeseburgers or French fries or whatever else you're eating, thinking this is gonna make you more spiritual, by grace, 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 grace. Collective church, I dare anybody here to show me a greater gift than grace. Unless you figured out how to put Maroon 5 at the bottom of the ocean. There's three. But 
where in the world and even the church, where the world is even the church, uh, moved on from this gift, the stranger of Hebrews 13 passionately tells them and tells us it still has some bloom left in it. Grace being something that we can never, ever, 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 ever get, but can only be given. Okay? Let's just fall deeply within you. I don't want us to treat it like old hat or moth-eaten. Grace, he says, is the answer. Because if we don't get this, there's a warning in Hebrews 13, 10. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. It's pulling in this old Jewish symbolism to make the point that if you want the old ways, if you'd rather do it by works, if you'd rather do all your rituals and ceremonies, if you want to boldly reject and reverse grace, you can't eat of its feast. It's very serious. There's no way to earn, deserve, or bring about any of it. Any more than we can bring about our own birth or the sun to rise. And this is a crucial for us that begins, sustains, and completes our faith. The assertion that people are saved by an unearnable gift because there's nothing you and I can do. There's nothing we can do about it. No amount of Bible reading, no amount of rhythms of rituals, no amount of sacrifices or checks we could write can tip the scales of grace. Now, are those practices important before I get too ahead of myself? Of course, heavens, yes. Are they the missing, missing link to a, to a sexier, more glamorous, fashionable, uh, flashier relationship with Christ? No, graces. Any and all spiritual practices only to help focus our attention on grace and not detract or graduate from it. And very practically, I don't want anybody leaving this place thinking, okay, cool. I'm not gonna read my Bible as much. No, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm not gonna read my Bible as much and I just need to ask for way more grace. No, 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 no. It has all been poured out, poured out. There's no more left in the Jesus bucket. So we shouldn't feel compelled to ask for more grace. Our prayers need to be start to become an awareness of it. God, help me to see the grace that is already here in my life and operate from that. Now, all of that hopefully should strengthen the old heart. A real enough strength that changes us from the inside out most naturally. Do you want that type of change? Do we want that type of change? I do. I want us to see how Jesus accomplishes it. Not us, how he accomplishes it. Look at verse 11. This is so awesome. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priests as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Leviticus 16 tells us that bulls which were offered for sin offerings and sacrifice were burned outside the camp. Okay, have that in your context of old Jewish history. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Oh, mama, I have been waiting all book of Hebrews to get to this monumental penetrating idea and sentiment. Jesus thrown outside the limits of one's religious, political, theological, philosophical, and relational camps. 
If that's not enough, the man Christ Jesus, rejected by both secular and religious establishments, hated by spiritual leaders and governors, persecuted by his own people to the point of execution, forsaken by all and considered a heretic, a treasoner, blasphemous, scandalous scum. Holy smokes. And he, because of all that, he's catapulted outside and crucified the very promised land that his father, that his father brought and carried and guided his people to centuries before. He's thrown out. God is thrown out of the promised land because he didn't fit in to our expectations. And from that point, from that point, the stranger's point, his his massive climax to them and to us is, is this. Thus, church, it it shouldn't surprise you that you are as well. God in Christ could not fit into the rigid boxes of expectations. So we are off our rockers if you think we'll fit into ours. God is outside the gates. What exactly though does that mean for our Monday mornings? It means our identities, our vocations, our sexuality, our marriages, our singleness, our child wearing, our wallet, and our expectations. It means this. Look at the next verse. Oh, and for what it's worth, Out of the 20 therefores in scripture, these strong conclusions that he gives, this is the last one. The last one. We approach it in the book of Hebrews. This is his giant conclusion to Jesus outside the gates. Verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Conclusion. Therefore, Go to him. Walk outside the city gates. If our expectations of this Jesus or this God solution that maybe some of us here want isn't one of outside the gates or isn't Jesus on a cross or that he hasn't suffered or he isn't calling us to suffering or daily deaths, then we have created a divine deity from our own making. Therefore, that's a strange teaching. The application point is this. We must be willing to go out from the system of and lose needed approval, desired praise, crave flattery, certain reputations, cozy comfort, self-glory and acclaim, and man's, man's pleasure and acceptance with a willingness to bear the reproach and even shame that Christ bore. Therefore, go outside the gates. Reminds me of what the stranger told his church in Hebrews 11 regarding their huge hero, Moses. They're obsessed with Moses. This is the attitude Moses had toward the city and inside the gates. Hebrews 11, verse 25. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered, look at this word, he considered the reproach of Christ greater, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Friends, for Christ, the Bible, the gospel, disgrace becomes a privilege. Suffering becomes a privilege. Hardship, rejection becomes a privilege. Is there anywhere in your life where you would rather stay inside the city limits? Let me tell you, I'm assuming we all do. 
I know I do. I'd rather stay inside. We don't like this. Anybody want suffering or persecution? No, we don't like this. But let me say this. An obedience to a reproached, shamed Christ is a maturing faith. Meaning, and please understand what I mean here. Meaning, obeying and trusting a God we don't necessarily like at times is a sign of truth. Not a strange and adverse teaching, but truth. It's having its way within us. Is it safe to assume that there are those here who who don't want to follow Jesus or trust God simply because you are waiting for that sermon, a line, a promise that is likable to your standards? There's somebody here right now going, if I can just hear that line that makes me like God enough, then I'll finally do it. That's God as a solution maker, problem solver. And this is not only true for the unchristian, but for Christians as well. Waiting or wanting a God who is heavy on our happiness, but light on our holiness. Waiting or wanting a God who brings me my man or brings me my woman. Waiting for a God who is likable enough, who gorges us with the answers we want and experiences and warmth and miracles. There's this really profound moment. It's one of my favorite moments of Jesus in the gospel of John in the New Testament where Jesus just got done doing incredible miracles and he starts talking to his followers and he elaborately explains who he is. Elaborately, this is who I am. This is what I want. And this is what it means to follow me. And you know what happens? Hundreds and thousands of people at that moment decided one thing. We don't like you or what you have to offer. To them, Jesus, you are another intellectually incredible or not existentially satisfying enough. So you know what they did? John 6.66 tells us, sorry about that Bible reference. (laughs) I didn't plan it. But it tells us, after many of his disciples turned back, after, excuse me, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Their conclusion was, no, I don't like you or what you have to offer. They went back inside the gates, you could say. And they mourned wrongful expectations that they must have had. But those who were closest to Jesus, the 12 disciples, sat there stupefied, stumped, and probably sad to see this massive church-like thing growing and everybody's into Jesus, then Jesus pulls some of that? They must have been like, what the heck? And Jesus looks right at them, and you know what he says? Verse 67, do you want to go away as well? There's always a choice to receive or reject Jesus. And these disciples, though, looked at the magnitude of his claims and the evidence of his life and the fact that he didn't fit into a single one of their expectations, and you know what? They were led to the conclusion of verse 68 of John chapter six. This is what they said. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do we know what they just did? What this entire chapter of the book of Hebrews is really all a lot of Hebrews is doing, what it's asking for. It's asking for this. Lose, lose, lose wrongful expectations and identify with who he really is. Collective church, identify with Jesus. 
identify with his ways and his baptism and his supremacy and his will and his grace. Why, you ask? Verse 14 tells us. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Because Christ offers the everlasting. Christ offers the everlasting. Isn't that what Peter's conclusion was of John 6? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You offer the everlasting. A far-sighted perspective of everything here and now, the reproach, the, the, the persecution, our dreams and aspirations is infused by a right expectation and identity of Christ. Is that making sense? Let me try to make it. A sideline of the city to come takes these really good things of our life, money, marriages, creativity, desires, and even the hard things, reproach, shame, man-pleasing, and makes sense of them. Why? How? By liberating us from those things owning us. No longer do those things own us. Could anything right now, collective church, visitors be owning you? You see, this is the best type of losing that losing there possibly is. The loss of enslavement to temporal cities or inside the gate living. And once we have that sightline in place, then what we have or do changes. It all changes. Look at verse 15. And don't just, let's not just scoot past these words. Verse 15, look at this, through him. Not just by him, not just because of him, not just for him, through him. Like a sacrifice cut open. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That word continually means a weaving into all dimensions. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. If we acknowledge his name, if we say he is supreme, then, verse 16, do not neglect to do good and share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Are we getting this? He's saying, stop. Stop coming to God with sacrifices that you think will position you in a better way with him. Stop. There's another loss of religious thought we must have. Because with Jesus, the meaning of sacrifice has changed. There's no longer a goat or a grain offering. So then what kind of sacrifice is there? Author David Witt, I like his definition. He says, To be a sacrifice is to transform one's individual life into something whose significance transcends that individuality. In other words, it is the totality of our lives. It's the totality of our lives for other people. It's all of life sharing, all of life sacrifice, all of life worship. So let's confess in closing, that to talk of worship or sacrifice or to speak of doing though, even like communion or singing or praying, for God can feel burdensome. If our hearts aren't enraptured with the idea that we aren't doing these rituals, these practices to win God or to feel spiritual or to play church. Communion up here on our right and our left, they are symbolism of a sacrifice where in which God has won us. And then from that communion truth to being so stunned with God's grace that our mouth just explodes with songs of praise and proclamations of his accomplishments. And if we don't see that supreme finishing work, 
And any talk of sacrifice of praise will ring hollow in our hearts. So I want to end with this question. I want us to take this into a time of reflection and response. Does the totality of my life show that I identify with or that Jesus is more precious to me than positions, power, or my persona? If during our time of response you discover that no, it doesn't, that I am living one foot inside the gates and one foot outside the gates, would you let us pray for you this morning? There's gonna be people along that wall. Sadly, because of the way the room's shaped, there's nobody over here. If you need prayer, people along that wall wearing lanyards, they want to pray for you. Would you allow the church to be the church to intercede for you this morning by going to them and saying, I'm, I'm dual living. And lastly, would you let me pray for you right now? Let's pray.